Joe, welcome to the Essentialism podcast. Thank you. Now, the background is that you emailed me. I did. And uh, for everyone who hasn't read that email, uh, tell me the story that, tell everyone else the story you told me. Okay. So I'm actually sitting in the place. Uh, So about four years ago, I read your book. I was in France. And I remember getting to the bit about where you talked about family and the importance of family and how you nearly didn't make the birth of one of your children because you hadn't prioritised it. And I remember bursting into tears and it was a real sort of critical moment in my life where I realised I needed to make some changes. And I was very, I was a workaholic. I couldn't not work. Um, and I got quite sick. And anyway, I did start practising essentialism. Um, and it's funny, I was just reading a blog I wrote right at the beginning about how I was doing deep work and focusing on on important things. And um, it just feels like, you know, it was very much at the beginning of my essentialism journey then. Um, mm. Anyway, so that, you know, that, you know, I did practice essentialism and it is a muscle that you have to practice for a long time. And then one day I was, I was well, I was working for myself and my mum had had some minor infections She'd had antibiotics, wasn't really working for her. So my mum was 67, not in brilliant health. And um, I've got a phone call from my dad saying mum's just gone into hospital. She'd been in hospital the week before when she'd come out and dad sounded knackered. And I was sitting at my desk and I just started um, working for a new client. And I looked out the window and I've been practicing the what's the most important thing thing. And the day that, that day, I thought, actually, the most important thing I need to do is go down to the hospital and see my mom and give my dad a break. And I called my dad and said, I'm coming. And he said, don't, you know, you've got a lot on your plate. And I thought, I must. <laughs> and I, uh, I took my laptop, which is, you know, never need to be far away from a laptop. I thought I can always work there. And I got there, sent my dad home. And my mom was looking absolutely terrified. And the doctors and nurses were looking pretty worried and um so I got my laptop out as I thought if mum sees me using the laptop she'll be less worried and um Hmm. and then she had then she went into a seizure and um and then they put her into a induced coma in front of me um but before she did that I got to say I love you mum and everything's going to be okay and she said I love you too um she didn't look so convinced that everything was going to be okay and then and then, and, you know, it was full on ER, running down the corridor with my laptop into um, the intensive care unit. And I spent a week in intensive care with her. And then sadly, a week later, we, we switched off her life support machine. And um, and I, don't, I just wanted you to, to know that, that that had been an outcome of the work that you do, because, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't make the grief any easier. <laughs> um, mm. and, but it, it, you know, it was the, without doubt the most important thing I could have done at that moment. And I was glad I was there. And I think about that moment every day and how lucky I am to be alive. Um, and that's why I continue to practice being an essentialist. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, um, first of all. And I was touched in the story that you told uh, in the e- email originally that this question of what's the most important thing to do today evolved for you. So the question was the same, but Mm. 
over time, the answer changed. So yeah. I seem to recall that at first you were, it was almost always a work answer, something that you needed to do at work, but then slowly it became sometimes work and sometimes um, self-preservation and, you know, looking after yourself. And then in this moment, <clears throat> in this moment, there was enough discernment, enough space that you really knew don't don't listen to that actually mm. follow this feeling within you to just you know drop everything really drive the two hours to the hospital be there and have this moment with your mother mm. I thought of you actually <laughs> I literally thought of you and your wife as I sat there at, at our desk looking out the window mm. and I think um so yeah certainly at the beginning of my essentialist journey if I think about your circle where you put yourself in the middle and your family around the next circle and then other people um mm. I'm I was really rubbish at putting myself in the center of that circle and I still am and that's you know the next part of my journey but it's my family I think my family have always been in the center of my circle um and I'm on the outside um mm. I then had a very essentialist grief experience so I'd seen my husband lose his father I think a couple of years before I saw how he you know we're very rubbish at grief in Britain I don't know what it's like in America but you know we tend to sort of like brush it brush it under the carpet and carry on and I saw how uh, ineffective that was as a strategy so I got all essentialist about my grief mm. um, and I I mean if I could have worn black like a Victorian woman all year I would have and I, um, I did grief writing course and I got a therapist and I found my grief tribe. And I remember saying to people, I can't come out to see you. I'm grieving. And, you know, again, I think I remember thinking, <laughs> I'm, um, but I think I was protecting the asset because I had to get back to work. And I knew that if I didn't focus on this, <laughs> then I wouldn't be able to do that. And then I wouldn't be able to support my family. No, but I understand what you're saying there. And you're saying that you you tried to actually make a trade-off. You tried to say, no, I'm not going to pretend everything's all right. I'm going to actually experience this uh, and, and prioritize it. Yeah, absolutely. I had to. I just, you know, sometimes something shifts in my brain and I just have to do, you know, something, something, a path comes before me. And I, you know, I remember seeing the pain of my husband a year later when it starts to come out and still the pain he feels. And I just thought, I can't. I can't and won't do that. And mum would not have wanted me to do that. And, you know, it, I just took it slowly and I refused to be hurried. I really was quite, you know, I, I wore my grief and I, I wasn't proud of it, but I, you know, I was not going to make everyone feel better by being jolly the whole time. <laughs> and grief could come to the door and I could sit with it. Yeah. Again, essentialism helped me out there. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate so much that, that, Essentialism didn't just play a role in that moment uh, at the, you know, at the hospital, but in the journey afterwards. Uh, and I think for a lot of people listening to this, they will relate to that feeling of being rushed through grief and, you know, hurry up and pretend that everything's okay and, uh, and, and get over this and, and do everything you were doing before. And what you're saying is, is I, that you resisted and that that created um, 
health for you, uh, emotional health to be able to mourn, to be able to to feel what you're feeling. Yeah, I just had to strip away things that were not necessary and being jolly uh, to make everyone else feel better was not necessary. <laughs> um, mm. And being on my own and having space was really important so that I could feel what I needed to feel. You sent to me uh, a photograph. I've, I've never seen actually something like this, uh, but you sent me a photograph of, of like a before and after photograph can you describe that, you know, why you sent that and what that is that... Uh... So that was me in burnout. So that, and, and burnout typically is a, is a mental health thing where you, you burn out on the inside. So you basically work yourself so hard that you go into kind of like internal breakdown and you have adrenal fatigue and um, depression and, you know, your body just says enough's enough. And... With me, I had eczema, and so when I know that I'm um, uh, overdoing it, um, I, it comes out externally. So it was me, and it was the day I, I just had to leave. I left work. I took some time off, um, and I took a picture of myself because I, I thought I've, I've got to never be like this again. But the weird thing was I, I didn't see the signs, and I think that's the thing. If you don't create the space in your life, in the silence it's quite easy to miss the signs um that things aren't going how they should be so I guess that the picture after is when I sort of had an essentialist approach to my own health but it wasn't about getting myself well for me it was getting myself well for my family so I could support them again and then I got myself a life and health coach and I discovered yoga which is just life-changing for me and I have a toolkit now of things that help keep me in balance, um, like yoga and walking in nature and you know, nothing like brain surgery, but I, it, it helps me protect the assets sort of long term um, and keeps me standing upright. <laughs> I think a lot of people, um, you know, I've got to figure out a way to be able to share this picture with your permission because... Of course. Because if somebody's tidying their closet, the before and after picture is so, you know, so clear... Uh, you know, it's a mess before it's organized afterwards. There's something very nice about that. And, um, but when you talk about before and after living life as a non-essentialist where you get exhausted and then the life after as an essentialist, it, it's harder to present that. But, but in this picture, mm. I've, I feel like you giving us such a gift because there's a lot of people right now who mm. are exhausted uh, mm. who are fatigued, who are teetering on the edge of total burnout. Yeah. And, and actually maybe in a similar way you were describing, um, not so much in denial about it, but just not even really aware of it. It's about, it's like an addiction, a bit working too hard. It, and you become really clever at covering this, the things that are not great. So, you know, because I remember thinking, why... I'm not very well. I can't stop myself. Why are people around me not stopping me? And it's because I hid it, you know, and I said, you know, people would say, how are you? And I go, I'm fine. I'm fine. I really am fine. And I really wasn't fine. But you become very clever at hiding it. And then you hide it from yourself. And then it, it kind of goes. The research I've read about this is that when people are sleep deprived, for example, they're actually very poor judges of being sleep deprived. Mm. 
so the cycle can continue. But that's what I hear you saying is that when we're exhausted, maybe we're bad judges of that. Or, But you're saying more than that. You're saying hiding it. So you wanted somehow to hide that from others and from yourself. Is that right? I mean, clearly towards the end, I knew I was unwell. I, the adrenaline was pumping through my you know I couldn't sit still but I remember thinking I can outrun this I can outrun this I could just work a little bit harder and I can outrun this you know eventually it did stop but having you know taken its toll and providing a lovely picture like that <laughs> I think what you said a moment ago about I thought I could outrun it is insightful to me because it's a it's basically a true principle and strength gone wrong or being taken too far. Because, of course, in many instances in life, if there's a problem and you work at it and you work hard at it, you can improve that situation. But that is true. And if someone's not doing anything about a problem and they start to do something, they can get somewhere. and, And you will no doubt have been rewarded for that in various ways in your life. But the thing about burnout is that the the thing that caused it is not the thing that will get you out of it. No, (laughs) no, it's the opposite of that. I can see it with others now and that's why I talk about it. And when I'm, you know, in this COVID world and we've all all the meetings are online, I've been very strict to ensure that people put their screens on because I can see it in people's eyes. I can see if someone's struggling, you know, it worries me that, um, we're asking people to be managers and friends and family on in this completely new world that we're not equipped to maybe deal with. Um, and people are going to get stuck. You know, they're going to fall between the cracks um, if we're not careful. And my sense is that people have used up deep reserves to get to here. So it's about tr- a trend. If each day you can cope, but you're coping by by mining more of that um, the, the the energies and deep energies and th- that that took a long time to develop. Uh, if every day you're using a little more of that, then over time you're you know you're scraping deeper and deeper into the bottom of the barrel. And so, well, now what do we do? I, it's funny, I knew at the time, I don't know whether you did, that this was a moment in time. Um, I, there were so many positive things for me about lockdown. And I, I remember thinking, I'm going to forget all of them. So I wrote it all down <laughs> because it was a full colour experience for me. It really was. You know, I, for the first time in my life, I got to spend every meal, every evening meal with my kids, my family. I've never done that. You know, I went back to work when they were three months old and obviously they don't eat anything because they're uh, fussy teenagers, but it was a really, it was amazing. Uh, it was, and there were other amazing things like getting to a Saturday morning and not having a to-do list. It just, it was, it was very refreshing. And so I need to just work out what was good and make sure I do that and then try and think of ways, um, essentialist ways of dismissing the things that didn't work. Um, I think if I can work that out, then hopefully I can share that with other people. So really what you're saying is that something that seems essential to you now is making a plan 
for lockdown two uh, or, or, or phase two of this era of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, be, before we go there, is there some anything else in your life? Like if we just clean slate for a second, is there anything like what is essential for you that you feel like you're underinvesting in? Okay, so um, definitely getting me in the centre of that circle. So I am perimenopausal, so that means I'm kind of in the, well, it's not the end of my life, but it's the end of my um, child bringing up life, which is fine because I don't want any more children. Um, and I, uh, I really was unwell until I worked out how to get better. Now I'm feeling on fire, got the hormones, <laughs> um, but it's very odd. There's, I really want to consciously plan the rest of my life. And I know that sounds really, that probably sounds very odd, but it's quite a monumental time when you come to this part of your life and no one gives you the guidebook. Obviously, when, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're young, there's lots of people helping teenagers about, about what GCSEs to do, what colleges to go to. Then when you have a baby, there's loads of stuff about, you know, how you should bring up a baby and all the different things and what you need to buy. And then when you get to this time of life, you know, when I've probably got another 20 years work in me, there's no map. <laughs> um, and, mm. um, and, I, and I want to consciously plan that because at some stage my kids will leave and they'll have other priorities and I want to live the best life I could. And, but I need the space to work that out. And it's very uncomfortable for me to put myself in the centre of that circle because actually I'm doing it for me. I'm not doing it to protect the asset, to provide for everybody. You know, my husband is an equal provider, but I, I just, it's a, it's a switch. I don't know quite how to make. What I heard you just say is that you are in a time of great transition. Definitely. There's, there's physical hormonal transition. Oh, yes. Um, uh, there's, there's anticipation of, of just your family transition. Your children will leave you. You know, they're not there just yet, but you can see it on the horizon now. That's coming. Uh, and you, you're wanting, even in, even while lots is going on around you, even while COVID ramifications are happening around you, to create enough space. You're saying it's for you, but what you mean, I think, is space to get clear about what your highest contribution will be post these transitions. Does that sound right? You know, when it came to these getting well so I could get back to work, dealing with my grief so I could get back to work, when, it, when this is, it feels just very selfish to go, I want to plan, consciously plan the rest of my life. I've started to think about why is that? Where's that come from? And um, I'm starting to understand what could get in the way. It's a big leap. And I'm sure it's not. I'm not the only one. I'm sure. I'm sure that's true as well. Let, let me ask you this. Why does it matter so much to plan, you know, what you're saying, the next, the, the, the rest of your life, the next act of your life? Why is it important? You know, I saw the fragility of life. You know, that sounds corny, but... I saw my mum go from well, and I've got, you know, weirdly, I've got all her text messages. I've got, it's just like, 
I could go back for months and look at the different text messages. And I saw that go, you know, and I sat in an intensive care and I saw that go for lots of people and you get one life and I don't want regrets. And I think I have got a contribution to make that's valuable. I mean, I, I like helping people to help themselves. And um, like when I shared that picture, I could see that there was a lot of people in pain and that picture helped them feel less alone. And now I'm talking to people about menopause and I'm helping people connect the dots. And I'm not saying that's, you know, that's my, that's what I'm going to do, but it's, it feels a lot better than just slogging for a big job title and a company car. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Yes, what I heard you say was that you feel a mission you haven't quite crafted what the message is or even what the mission is, no. but still a sensation that there's a difference to be made and something meaningful to contribute. Well, what is that? And how can I be used best? And who can I serve most in this meaningful potential mission? So Rachel Hollis, I, I, you know, I've read her book. She's great. And, and it is about the one, isn't it? It is about thinking about the one person you can help. And if I think back to myself, about four years ago, I went to a conference, I go to a lot of conferences, and this woman stood up and she talked about being ADHD. And I, it was incredible. I went, that is my life. You've just described my life. And at 45 years old, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And I've had ADHD you know, all my life. You know, it's moderate. It's not, there were people with far more severe. Everything started to click into place. I've got I've got a dyslexic daughter. My other daughter's Stephanie somewhere on the spectrum. I'm sure my mum had it. I have become so much kinder to myself now that I know that. Um, it's made a, you know, after a bit of grief when I thought, why did no one spot this? And if I think that's that's one person, 
who stood up. She didn't know she was going to make that difference that day, but she's made a profound difference to my life. And actually, she's made a profound difference to my children's life because, you know, they're they're lucky enough to live in a house where their mum gets them and and lets them flourish with their uh, different neurological wiring. Uh, and And their dad does, of course. Yes, I I hear that. The story you were just telling about this lady that stands up and tells her story, I think the reason you were telling that story was just as a, it was an empowering moment for you, not just with ADHD, but also symbolically as a normal person like me, like Joe, can make a difference by telling their story, by getting out there. And so you're saying it was sort of a, justifying story that you're telling me like look i'm not i'm not being crazy um i I just would like to do what that person did and it's not so unrealistic or, or or so on that's what you were really telling me in that story i think yeah i think so and you know it's not i don't need to sit here and start a movement although movements are great and thank goodness you started essentialism but it's it's finding the time to um, to make that contribution. Again, it comes back to this idea, I'm going to need some space to think, to plan, to be a bit more strategic about my contribution, you know, over the next few decades of my life. And I know what's going to get in the way. Oh, I've got a fair idea. And I'm going to make you laugh, hopefully. It's the sunblush tomatoes. Sun blush tomatoes are going to get in my way, and by that I mean, um, yeah, I mean I have no idea what you just. Okay, said. good. So I, my husband, he's a wonderful man and the love of my life and my soulmate. He goes to the fridge and he goes, "Where are the sun blush tomatoes? Have we got any sun blush tomatoes?" And what I am hearing is not "Where are the sun blush tomatoes?" It's useful to have. I'm hearing, I have failed to provide a. Pinterest type fridge with an abundance of <laughs> sunblush tomato type condiments. And I think that's just, mm. <laughs> and I'm like, he's not saying that. He's not saying you failed as a, as a wife and a mother because you haven't got sunblush tomatoes. He's just asking if they're there. But I have taken that to be some kind of personal slight on my child's rearing and family creation, which does, mm. Now I'm saying it out loud does sound nuts, but it, you know, it takes up an enormous amount of energy to live this uh, Pinterest life. Everybody fails at the Pinterest life, right? I mean that because because that is inherently a curated, you know, image uh, of just the right angle of the photo and so on. So so we can't live our whole life like that. I think it would be a very odd life to try and live. But really, you're saying something, you're saying two things. One is that you feel judged in those moments. But I think underneath it, it's just to do with expectations and how many expectations you have uh, of yourself and others have of you. And you say it's that multiplicity of expectations that's going to get in the way of me actually creating space to think and plan and and design, uh, you know, the next act of my life. Definitely. Which sounds so simple to say you should do, but it's so um, 
part of the fabric of me and I don't know whether other women or um or the way I you know was brought up have you ever done the um Harvard implicit bias tests mm, um, I have yeah but go on uh, tell us about those yeah so they're, they're um well I, was, I work in in a talent development and we do a lot of work in inclusion and belonging and um unconscious bias actually I wasn't familiar particularly with unconscious bias but um there's a test you can do called the Harvard Implicit Association Test. And it asks you lots of different questions about a number of different subjects. So, uh, And I did the one for gender and um, career. And I came out much to my shock and horror, considering I went back to work with my kids at three months old and have worked pretty much full time since as a moderate association with a man having a career and a woman looking after the family. I think, again, it's just to do with expectations, like role expectation. Even if you think about it from a, a business point of view for a second, if you're on a team and everyone thinks everyone else is doing everything, right, a very randomized team expectation, then that's no good for anybody. If you're on a team and for whatever reason, personal or team dynamics, you've ended up with way more responsibilities than anyone else on the team. But that's not going to work and be sustainable. And so getting to be explicit about expectations and really answering the, what sounds like a simple question, which is who does what? I can think of really no exceptions in my professional experience where you have a high-performing team where people were not highly clear about who was doing what and doing the work together, not who did what in our parents' generation, not what do our next door neighbors, who does what in our family, who does what? And you can't solve that, that conversation in an hour. You know, that's part, I think, of this next six months journey that you're on. We would give our children a checklist of what to pack and that didn't mean that that we as parents weren't responsible to then go and kind of make sure when they're young, you could still forget things. But it was about training them to be responsible for, for more maybe than they would otherwise be responsible for. And that was true with packing lists. It's true now we have a, a system for cleaning up after dinner every night. And we literally have it written up who does what and how we do it. People know who's doing what on the things we have. And the things that are still exhausting are the things that we haven't yet really clearly identified who's doing what. And and in many families, I think that when it's not clear who's doing what, it's like a, a, a table uh, that faces, frankly, often the mother uh, it, it rolls back to her. And so what what I think is going to be key is, is tipping the table by actually writing this these things out piece by piece. I had Eve Rodsky on. Fair play. Mm, I've got that on my list now. But it's doing it together as a family. It's not just now all the responsibility on you, but bringing the family together to have a, a family executive meeting or a council for want of a better term. And every week we're going to go through this and keep working on it. It will take a journey, but 
your job isn't just to try and force X amount of time for thinking. That won't be sustainable, I think. It's creating a system that supports you being able to do that so that you don't just do it by willpower and muscle your way through for three weeks you've created space. But no, week four, five, six, ten, you're still having time because you know, you've you've created roles that allow you to do that. What what are your thoughts as I share that? Loads of light bulbs going off. So year year ago, I was sent on a women's management retreat, which we were very lucky um, that those sort of things happened. Um, and it effect, effective actually, it was about essentialism, I think, in its core. You know, how are we going to live our bigger game? What's our bigger game? So my bigger game was, I want to help other women understand what's happening to their bodies when they get to 40. And so I came back and I, you know, I I bought four laundry baskets and said, from now on, everyone's doing their own laundry. And that was that. And everyone went, okay. After week three, I'd gone back to living my bigger game and uh, and doing all the laundry because I just didn't see it through. And I, I don't think I explained my why, if I think about it retrospectively. I didn't explain that. They should. I didn't explain. I just, I just got the laundry baskets and just said, right, you're, that's what you're doing from now on. So I need this system, which they will go. They will go. They will find it really difficult, but doesn't mean it. They shouldn't do it. Well, and 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 there may be, you know, there's change takes time, but there's yeah. a, a. I think there's a long journey here mm. of of giving people responsibility and then letting them deal with the natural consequences. We can do it together and we can come up with other solutions. But I think that this is what I'm hoping for, for you is to, is not just to create space for a week or two, but is to create space for, for months for you, Mm. for for years. Years. Let me ask you this. How much time do you want to have available for just this thinking, planning, you know, the next act? Uh, What would success look like? At least half a day a week, half a day a week. I mean, mean, the irony is that as I'm sitting here thinking, um, you know, I, I put a lot of emotional energy into making them independent both my husband and I independent thinkers you know we have really honest conversations about black lives matter and lgbtq and you know really important life stuff and they're very independent independent thinkers and then I'm sitting here going don't worry I'll do your laundry I'm not helping them in any way (laughs) I'm really that's not helping drive push them in the right direction and so I need to reframe it in my head around that I think a bit um because I'm not helping them to help themselves. Yes, because um, I, I think that if you can reframe it around, I am empowering my children. I am helping them to become leaders of their yeah. own life. I am preparing them for their future. I, I suppose it's to be a leader in your family, not just uh, not just a, the, an individual contributor in your family. I mean, t- two weeks ago, I went for afternoon tea with some mums from school who... And I wouldn't say they're my closest friends. They're people that I like and and had five, six hours with them. And it was so refreshing and lovely. And I felt, you know, it was such a nice time. And we 
shared. She just talks about everything from COVID to husbands to school to, you know, it's just, it's just and I just never, that has to be part of the plan is to carve out time for relationships like that because it's always been the thing that falls off. Um, and it isn't easy for me. I find making friends quite can be quite challenging, but um, that has to be a priority. It has to be. What's the point otherwise? <laughs> what you're saying really is this was a success moment. It was some time where you weren't in the doing mode. You were just able yeah. to be, it was rejuvenating for you. And again, it matches this approximately half a day a week yeah. aspiration that you have. Yeah, that's doable. So speaking of it being doable, what adjustments need to be made in order to make it doable? We've talked about it, I think, in some, I mean, some specifics. We've talked about, um, well, delegating laundry again and getting that fully on each member of the house, let's say. But what else can be either delegated or eliminated so that, so that having this half a day a week to be thinking, planning, recuperating actually becomes the norm and not the exception to the rule? I think it's about understanding for my children and my husband and me, what are the, what are the priorities? You know, what, what, what matters as a family unit and what doesn't matter? That's applying the same rigour that I applied for my grief experience and my getting back to health experience, which I've not done before. And I've, I don't know, gosh, our brains are funny, aren't they? They just forget success. Well, that's why essentialism is a muscle that you have to keep practicing and practicing and practicing and it doesn't go away. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I personally really relate to that. Um, uh, just, just recently I finished a major project at, at work and, uh, and Anna was the one that wisely said, look, I think instead of, I think you need to take a couple of weeks just to not take get onto any new project or, or even just get back to normal work or even do catch up just to think. Mm. And in that process, it's almost like I've discovered what being an essentialist is again. Mm. I'm like, uh, I'm like new to it again. And I literally said just the other day, I said, I feel like I've got my life back. And that's like quintessential what it means to be an essentialist is that you aren't just saying yes reactively. And I, this time around, I feel no selfishness about it this time. I feel clear that the reason for creating the space is precisely because I want to make the best contribution I can possibly make with the precious limited time that we have on earth. I know that's my motivation. And I know completely clearly that you have to create space to think, dream, plan, mm-hmm. instead of just do. Uh, there's there's plenty of doing in life, even with this intent that I'm describing. But if we just do and then do more and then do more, we we lose discernment, and therefore we start to become first tired, then fatigued, then actually fully exhausted and burned mm. out. And the patterns that we started on today, I think it is about this half a day. I think to get that half a day, you may need to just go and literally say, that's what you need. That's what you're wanting to have and explaining your why saying, 
this is this is mm. how we're going to get better as a family and it's important to me because i want to make a contribution you know in time beyond my family and i want to set that example for all of you for all of those reasons i need this space and time and therefore we need to get clearer about who is doing what so that this is possible in my life and so that we can operate as a better uh, i hate to say it this way very business way of saying it but high performing family you know that right that we can be a great team together high performing oh i love that and and it's this ongoing iterative process so that people are responsible for their separate parts. Uh, and, and I think this is an application of essentialism for your life so that you can get this space back uh, to be able to design what I think will be a really wonderful contribution in this next act of your life. So thank you. That's amazing. I'm, I'm going to give I'm going to buy some highlighters and some notes and this weekend I'm going to get some pizza and we're going to sit down and do it. Well, it's it's just been my pleasure and uh, I look forward to seeing the uh, the actual concrete output and seeing those pictures and to be able to share this story and your, your ongoing journey uh, with lots of people who I think can relate. Thank you, Joe. Oh, thank you. It's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you sincerely for listening. And if you like this conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a comment to help other people find us. Email me at essentialism.com if you have questions you would like me to answer in a future episode. Uh, Soon here, we will have an episode specifically, a sort of ask me anything episode. If you have questions you'd like me to address, Uh, please email me at essentialism.com so I can consider it. Uh, If you want to join our community, follow us on social media at Gregory McEwen and at Essentialism Podcast. Again, I really am genuinely grateful to you for listening. Uh, Remember, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.